Hello out there. Welcome to episode 136 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris, and on the other end of a Skype connection, I have... He's becoming a regular to the show. Guitarist and singer-songwriter for the Bondi Cigars, Mr. Shane Pacey. Hi, Morris. I've been sitting here since the last time. Uh, you have. How, how many weeks is that? Good Lord. Oh, well, it's been a while. I've been waiting for the call. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm my, good, thank you. My people calling your people. Just <laughs> stick around. So... Shane and I have been doing something a little bit different this time around. Normally, we pick an album and we just chew through the bones of what we like about a particular record. But this time around, what we've gone and done is we've had an interview with a really fascinating fellow, John Penhallow. John was the original manager of the great Fairport Convention, who are still playing to this day. Very different lineup from what, how it originally started, no surprise there. But John was there right at the very beginning, so it was terrific to be able to get his perspective on what the scene was like back in the day, his relationship with the various members of Fairport Convention, and the work that he did in the years after he stopped actually being their manager. So, really terrific conversation. It was certainly great to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, and to almost clarify some of the things that, that I might have read in some of the histories some of the biographies yeah I mean, there's not a whole lot written about those very early times I struggle to find terribly much my Richard Thompson biography doesn't seem to really make so much of John himself but I think he did say something in the chat that there is considerable talk about it in the Joe Boyd autobiography so I think I'm gonna have to yeah go out and search out a copy of that book that's definitely worth reading Joe Boyd had his hand in lots of things then and, and going on into the 70s Thank you so much to uh, David Kelly, the listener to the program, who uh, put me in contact with John. This would not have gone ahead without his suggestion and him uh, helping me out. My appreciation to you, David, for doing that. Joanne will now give you the contact details. Then we'll get back to the interview, and then uh, Shannon and I will come back at the very end to wrap this up and talk about what's going to be happening next month. You're listening to Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 136 of Love That Album, and Shane Pacey and I are here with John Penhala. Well, we're here with him on Skype because we're not allowed to be there with him at the moment. John has many strings to his bow, but how he was introduced to me was through his initial work with Fairport Convention and was their manager for the early part of their career. So uh, welcome to Love That Album, John. Thank you, Morris, and hi, Shane. Hey, John. Hi, Morris. Hey, Shane. 
So, look, before we get into asking about your involvement with Fairport Convention, and even before we start asking about your musical introduction, because I do want to get there, earlier on this week came the very sad news of the passing of Judy Dibel, who was the first singer for Fairport Convention. She's on their debut album. How much of a connection had you had with her in recent years? Of course, we were teenage buddies in the around the group and around Muswell Hill. Within Muswell Hill back in the 60s, in North London and Muswell Hill is sort of between Highgate and Alexandra Palace Summer of Love Judy lived round the corner from Ashley Hutchings and then there's another bunch of friends from that area and we all used to congregate at the North Bank Youth Club on a Friday night and we'd bring our chubby checker let's twist again singles and dance around and uh, with a, a record player and so when the band started forming and Judy joined uh, Ashley introduced us and then she was one of the band and for the next six seven months eight months that that we were both there when judy got the flick i got the flick not long after by joe boyd i came out here in 75 and then i went back in 1997 and judy was invited to play at Cropperty festival a fairport's annual reunion so she got up on stage but I was fortunate enough to meet her afterwards. Uh, and so we, we formed a, a new friendship again. So I was saying I used to go to Cropperty every sort of five years from from 1997 on, and uh, we always caught up there. But my business also took me to back to England and doing um, trade shows at the Birmingham NEC. After I checked out of the hotel and I was due for Heathrow for the evening flight back to Sydney, I drop into Judy's house for a cup of tea and a chat and feed the greyhound and and she'd thrust another cd into my hand say here take this home and play it so i've got a small collection of judy cds as well it's only been like through the last few days i'm ashamed to admit that i only sort of took to listening to her work outside of Fairport. I didn't really sure. know much about what else that she'd done, but finding out, well, she'd been in the starting lineup before King Crimson and Trader Horn. The Trader Horn stuff just absolutely blew me away. It was so gorgeous. One radio show a year now for Fine Music in Sydney, 102.5. And I just do the Christmas show. That's my only, I'm, I'm once a year like Santa Claus. I come in on in December and record a, a one-hour show. And there's always a Fairport or Albion Christmas band track in it. And there's something that can pass from Trader Horn that can pass as a Christmas song and I played that so had you been in contact much with Judy in like in recent years did you speak to her over Skype or something like that no we were constant Facebook backwards and forth she's uh, Judy was well loved by many many people uh, around the world and she has these whimsical Facebook entries her Christmas cards used to turn up with regularity every December uh, and we exchanged those Judy was well loved by her audience they loved her singing they loved her pure English diction 
Mm. And I think that's why she was friends with Robert Fripp and the musicians that she's worked with in the last four or five years. You know, they adored her, absolutely adored her. And she was infatuated with rescuing greyhounds. You know, some of that's caught on. My my brother <laughs> looked after, fostered a, a greyhound recently, and it's a lovely animal. I do love them. And, I, and the greyhound features on the covers of her latest CDs. And oh. Yep, we've had some to and fros via Facebook. We've had some emails between us. And I think that the last time I saw her to talk to was at Cropperty 2017. It seems very sorely missed by what I'm seeing yes. from the fans in social media world. I do have one question that I have to ask you. One of my listeners sent me a message to ask you, is there any truth to the story that during a really long guitar solo of Richard's that she sat on stage and knitted? Yes, that's true. Oh. And uh, <laughs> absolutely true. Ashley writes about it in his book where to do the sets they had to do at the Speakeasy Club, four sets up until three or four in the morning in the West End, they started to stretch out. And so they used Reno Nevada as the song and Judy would sing the, the song with Ian and then Ian would go to one side of the stage and Judy would go to the other. She'd pull out the knitting and start doing it. song in back in the 67 that they did was Paul Butterfield's and Mike Bloomfield's East West and I was so impressed two or three months ago when I came across a track by the Third Mind Band which is Dave Alvin's mm, psychedelic mm. band and they do East West and guess what the drummer is Michael Jerome Richard Thompson's drummer yes, yes. you can imagine have this imaginary telephone conversation between Michael and Richard and Richard saying oh what you been doing lately Michael, <laughs> Michael says, oh, I went to the studio with Dave Alvin, who's a Richard Thompson fan anyway. He said, oh, we did this really good album, played a really long number, like eight, nine minutes long, called East West. And we said, oh, I did that in 67. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have heard that album. It is fantastic. Right? It is I'm lovely. Big Dave Alvin fans. I was very excited to hear that. Richard Thompson would have been the, about the only guitar player that could have done that. And British guitarist. Sure. I think. And, yeah. And uh, he sat down on the stage and, yeah. in, the, in the eastern se- on a section. Carpet, of on a carpet, did he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back and just find out a little bit about your origins, John. When you were growing up, were you one of those kids who was all excited by the Beatles and the beat scene oh, yeah. of, of the time? Absolutely. Yes, the Beatles like anyone that grew up 63, 64 when I was born in 49. So that was a trigger and it was they expressed some sort of their musical freedom as it developed and they affected society. And I look back at the pictures and everyone over 40 looked like they were over 60. So we got going, as I said, through the North Bank Youth Club and I got interested in the music when I was asked by the elders who ran the club about some bands to play. And one of 
Ashley's bands was Dr. K's blues band at one time. He played bass there uh, for Dr. K. And there were other bands. I think one of the early versions of Fairport was one called Tim Turner's Narration that had two or three gigs at some point. But uh, it was a real find when the other big Muswell Hill band, the Muswell Hill Billies themselves, the Ravens, I got the Ravens to play at the club on a Saturday night. It's like a blue light disco, but with the live band. And this lovely manor house type of, uh, which had sort of the rooms from the front to the back had separating walls. So they just fill up the double size room with people. And the Ravens played and they went down a storm. We filled the place, we sold every ticket. I was like 15, 16, something like that. I got them to come back and this was 1963. And I had them another contract signed. I didn't sign it, I was too young. But we got them back uh, at a slightly higher. Uh, high rate but we put them in a bigger church hall in Hornsey and uh, I remember the night distinctly because it was the night after Kennedy was shot November 23 it was a Saturday night Kennedy was shot on the 22nd in as far as England was concerned the night before or the day before and we didn't know whether World War Three would break out, whether bombs would fall off out of the sky or whatever. Everyone was really worried, but nothing happened. The gig went on. The place rocked. And they turned, the boys turned up, the kinks turned up in their hunting jackets, the red velvet with the frilly white shirts. I like to think I heard an early version of You Really Got Me because they didn't record it for another six months, but they were trying it out in their live act from what I've read. So it could have happened. And I know that was an influential gig for them because it appears in the stage show they put it up where Pete Quafer used to live around the corner. He's the one that used to bring the contractor around, me to take back and get signed by the club elders. And in the play, he says after he's threatening to walk out on the kinks, he says, it was more fun when we was playing up the youth club. <laughs> and I was in the audience and I was shedding a tear because, oh, that's my youth club he's talking yeah. about, you know. And whether it was or not, I don't know, but it was good. And 2015, I went back, I had lunch at the Cliss Old Arms where he used to drink, where, funnily enough, Simon Nichols' mother used to drink too, so it is quite likely that the Davis family and the Nichol matriarch were drinking at the pub at the same time. I don't know whether they know knew each other, but anyway, that's part of the legend. I went to the show, the Sunny Afternoon Musical. The next day, I went on a walk around Highgate, and we ended up near the Flask up in Highgate, which is Ray Davis is local and the tour group I was on we stopped outside a road this is just up from Highgate Cemetery where Karl Marx is buried Malcolm McLaren and Bert Yanch are buried there and I wanted to see this and I befriended a Canadian professor who was along for the ride the walk and I said to the tour leader isn't Ray Davis a resident around here now he said oh yes he lives in this house opposite so after it all the tour broke up and we all went down separate ways down about to go down to the cemetery I went back to the flask just to check out whether Ray was there and he wasn't there but as we came back around the corner a car draws up Ray Davis comes out and I said to um, Henry, the Canadian professor, look, stay with me on this. I went up to Ray. I said, I shook his, offered my hand. He took it and we shook hands. I said, you won't remember me. 
but I put on the gig at the Moravian Church Hall in Hornsey. And he said, that was you, was it? And I said, yes, that was me. I was 16 years old or something, you know, 14 years old, 49 and 63. And I said, I know you remember it because you wrote about it in your biography, X-Ray. And it's there on a page saying the same sort of things. The Kennedy got shot. We're playing this gig at the Moravian Church Hall. Anyway, end of the kink story. That's the only contacts I can pass on to you there. But <laughs> that was inspiring. And so when Simon Nickel was a teenage friend through the teen years, we didn't go to the same school. He lived at the top of the hill. I lived at the bottom. We had a mutual friend that was in my scout patrol, Nick. And so during the summer holidays, the school holidays, we used to meet at Nick's house and also at Fairport Simon's home where his doctor had a surgery on the ground floor and the family lived upstairs. So that's how we became friends all those years ago. When the band said, we're wanting to start and play uh, gigs, uh, at that stage I was going out with uh, Angela my wife and her brother-in-law had a a car b a printing company and so nick designed a poster i booked the st michael's church hall in golders green as the first gig and keith and i drove around muswell hill suburbs sticking up the posters on the lampposts and telegraph poles etc as you do and uh, we charged six shillings i think and it was an absolute thrill for me in 2017 when we went back for the 50th anniversary at Cropperty that one of the t-shirts being sold at the merch tent was that poster, the orange poster with the outline of someone a little like Judy. It's my phone number, my family phone number, Tudor 2505 on the bottom where you can ring to book your advance ticket. Oh. You know, and there we were 50 years later and, and people are walking around the field wearing orange T-shirts you know, with that poster on. The gig famously had 20 people attend, but I think it was more than that. We did manage to buy a Chinese dinner from the proceeds after and then you know Keith and I got involved in supporting the band I went down to the Brian Morrison agency in uh, Denmark Street Charing Cross Road and convinced them that they should take my buddies on as a, a band and get them bookings how does a 16 year old kid convince a music agency my mate's got a band yeah sure yes well you know, <laughs> I, I mean obviously I had the chops for that <laughs> I got them the support gig for the Floyd at uh, you this is early days of the Floyd, of course. I was a little bit older than that. I was because um, we're talking 67, so I would have been 18 by then. We got them the gig at UFO. They played there, met with Joe Boyd, and there was another gig at uh, a strip club called Happening 44. It was a strip club in Soho during the day. And uh, Friday night, it was a psychedelic club for people to... Uh, it, was, it was all with the lava lamp light shows and all that mm. sort of thing. The Blossom Toes and the other band's family, and we all used to play there. Yeah. So what was a typical day in your life while you were managing the band? It sounds like you fell into it. Yeah, I fell into it. I was learning on the job, uh, absolutely inexperienced, but... You know, to his credit, Joe Boyd gave me a desk in the Witch Season Productions office on Charlotte Street, just around the corner from Good Street Station. 
So whether the band were playing the night before or not, I'd go into the office. If it was a late, late, I'd be in there midday-ish. But otherwise, I'd be turning up 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and looking at the schedule we had, was there a photography date? Was there a radio broadcast date with the BBC, a recording date, and organising the band? And it was a good office. That's where all the Osiris posters were produced. There was a great art director there who commissioned these posters for UFO and later on the Savile Theatre. And you can go online and see them now, Osiris posters, and they all came channeled through Joe's office. It was a separate thing. The artists were people like Hapshash and the Coloured Coat, and they're selling for big money now, originals. I've got two of them here in my music room, and my younger brother got, has got some as well. Of course, there was always the musicians were coming in, the Incredible String Band and Chris McGregor, the Brotherhood of Breath, Dudu Bakwana. And of course, Nick Drake came in uh, after Ashley moved him into Joe Boyd's stable after hearing him play at the Roundhouse one gig. Did Fairport get to play much with any of the other bands in the stable? Like, so the UFO Club, were they playing with Pink Floyd? Yeah, there's Pink Floyd, the Social Deviants was a good band, as Walker's sort of, you call them, before punk band. They were wild. Us had a family, we did Blossom Toes, yeah, the Floyd many times. They all came out the same Brian Morrison agency. And it turned up the other day again in um, my Facebook feed, the roster of how much the bands were were going for from one of the agencies. £50, £75, Fairport, £200 in, in that particular time. That was the cluster of bands that were making headway in that at that time. That whole hippie thing in London, it was very concentrated, wasn't it? Because the rest of Britain was still, because I was a kid in Sheffield yes. in 67, and I don't remember seeing anything like that. I read somewhere, it was, it was like 200 people that were the core of that whole scene, and that was basically it. Yeah. Maybe not 200, but a, a small amount of people that were hip enough to be part of that. UFO, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, with, uh, you know, that's uh, Phil May and the Fit Pretty Things. Yeah, they yeah. were in there in the mix tomorrow. Uh, we did the, the trips to Montreux and Rome and Arthur Brown, you know, with Fiery Helmet. I am the god of hellfire! And 10 years after, and uh, some of the blues bands that were part of that agency package. In your role, were you the guy who was getting them these venues? Yes. You know, it was the go-between the band and the agency. And then, the, you know, the BBC with John Peel started asking for sessions. BBC liked the band because they all lived locally in London. It wasn't mm. a big deal to get them into one of their recording studios to do the songs that appeared in the Heyday album and the BBC set. You know, we have from that day, uh, Reno Nevada's on this album, had Joni Mitchell covers, Bob Dylan covers, Bird on a Wire by Leonard Cohen, Gong Gong Gong. Some sunny day, baby, when everything seems okay, baby, you wake up and find that you're alone, cause I'll be gone. Gong Gong Gong, really gone. Gong Gong Gong. Thank you. 
that it was just so funny when um, Alison Krauss and Robert Plant covered that. Yeah. Because Robert knew he played with Band of Joy when we played at Middle Earth or Electric Garden at that time, whichever it was. And Sandy would sing Gong, Gong, Gong with the band. And he probably loved Sandy, so he remember. So that's where, you know, one of the BBC DJs christened them with the English version of the Jefferson Aeroplane. That's, uh, but not for that long. Well, no, because once Dave Swarbrick comes onto the scene, I think the whole sound of the band changes. Not that I've sort of heard as much of post-Richard and post-Sandy as I should have, but what I have heard, it sounds more like they're going into uh, the same sort of territory that Steel Eye Span were going into, very more English-sounding rather than being more American-influenced. Yeah, well, actually being the link there, yes. They're all covers, but they weren't really a cover band because they rearranged all of their songs, I think. T- oh, yeah. Their, I mean, there's yeah. not one song on there. I've got that on vinyl, that album, Hey Day, and mm-hmm. There's not one song that you can say sounds anything like the original at all. They they just rearranged every single one of them. Yeah. The the drums, I think he's on um, Suzanne, the drums on Suzanne. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's like, almost like a timpani drum yeah. part. They did yeah. that just about every song. They were definitely doing something with the material rather than just covering it. You know? Yes. Oh, yeah, they made it their own. That's yeah. for sure. You mentioned Hayda. The track that I love the most is their reading of Percy's song, the, the yeah, song yeah. which oh, yeah. he never put on a studio album, but it's just him and an acoustic guitar, Fairport doing their thing with the harmonies and yes. making it more yeah. intense, an instrument added every verse. They're interpreters, not coverers. That period is well covered by Joe Boyd's book, White Bicycles. Yeah, that's a, that's a great book. <laughs> now, you were saying something before about, like, after a period of time where Joe Boyd said, see bye-bye. Did he take over management because he, yes. he'd, he'd been producing their albums from day one? So you had crossover period, right? Yes, that's right. What happened was, after the UFO gig, he was taken by Richard's guitar playing and said, I want to work with this guy. And so... Uh, he contacted me and we organised the band and we all met up at Hampstead and went to dinner, took the band and myself to dinner, presented a contract and he was went in for record production and went to which season productions for management of which... I was put on payroll to look after the interests of the, the day-to-day workings of the band of getting, making sure they got there to whatever the appointment was because, obviously, things like the BBC and photographic sessions you do during the day and most of the gigs were on the weekend. Did Joe Boyd drive the, um, the change from Judy to Sandy Denny? I think so. I've been reading up this afternoon about it. It's a bit like Tiger had to break the news, but the band were getting heavier yeah. and Judy's voice wasn't strong it's pure and yeah. it's light yeah. Yeah. and uh, certainly worked best in the recording studio and on live you need to have sympathetic musician mixing yeah. with it and the band were being driven by power chords and long solos and things mm. apart from which I think Joe had also become smitten with Sandy and Sandy's yeah. voice and you know and wanted to put the two together you know one of the things that he did in letting me go and putting Anthea, who was looking after the string band, as the manager for 
all her artists in the day-to-day work. I said to uh, my wife Angie tonight that when I met Joe at the basement, when he came into Sydney with Robin Hitchcock to do the White Bicycles, he did some readings and then Robin would play the songs to illustrate the readings from those times. Joe's lady, who was with him from San Francisco, said, and how do you know Joe and what's the backstory? And I said, I can honestly say that it's quite likely that I owe my life to Joe because I could well have been in that van coming back from mothers in Birmingham yeah because I was in that van for many many gigs for the six or seven eight months I was looking after their day-to-day affairs yeah it was good to catch up with him it was good to be acknowledged by Joe on stage as the first manager who introduced um, Fairport to him and there were no issues afterwards between yourself and the band? No, actually, I got they gave me enough money I could go over to the States. I had a, a nice two-week holiday, three-week holiday over in New York and Long Island. Uh, and then I came back and started work mm. in a, a real job. From those days, Kingsley Abbott, who wrote uh, the Fairport Folio, he's a writer. He produced this book. You can see, well, you can see the listeners obviously can't, but <sighs> it's the Fairport Convention. There's a Fairport Convention picture with management. John Penhallow, which season productions, 83 Charlotte Street, London. Joe Boyd's phone number at the time. That's got his recollections of it. And Kingsley was my best man at the wedding. <laughs> so we worked together in uh, in another business uh, following my days at Fairport. So we were all great mates and still are. I still contact him from time to time. wrote to me during the week was about your work in terms of archiving a lot of the Sandy material and a lot of the Fairport material. I mean, we know Richard's own back catalogue of stuff. You know, I think there's been stuff on Free Read or the, the mm, Fly yes. Paper Club, but I think you worked with Trevor Lucas. Uh, sure. There seems to be like a wealth of material. There was that 19 CD box set that came out however many years ago which was unaffordable to to, to the ordinary average guy i have it here (laughs) oh wow in terms of putting together like pick any of those projects i mean i'm sure there's so many things like legals finding the tapes cleaning them up pick any one of those projects and tell us how you would approach archiving something like that together this all links back to a fairport tour when i'm trying to think when it was maybe in the, it would be in the 90s no it would be the 80s sorry sorry it's the 80s i took time off work and i drove simon down to victoria with the bushwhackers we did a, a, a fairport and bushwhackers doubleheader tour and we ended up at dobe newton's house for a barbecue the whole band And, of course, uh, I was then introduced to Elizabeth Hurt Lucas, Trevor's, or Mrs. Lucas number three, as she's known. (laughs) And uh, the children, Georgia, who's Sandy and Trevor's daughter, and Clancy, who is Elizabeth and Trevor's son. And that started a friendship that continues to this day. Georgia lives in Sydney and Clancy lives in Sydney. Elizabeth is now down in Melbourne. As we went over to the house they lived in, 
when when they moved from Melbourne to Epping in Sydney. We used to go over there for dinners and uh, hang out with Trevor and Liz and um, had some great times there. So Trevor at that stage said to me, do you want to see what I've got in the attic? So we went upstairs to the attic and there was this whole library of, I wouldn't say filed correctly or in any sort of sequence, but a whole load of tapes that were submasters or rough mixes or live at the opera house tapes early demos of fairport with trevor in so the fairport nine lineup and also with sandy in and some of the tracks that trevor had made for movies in australia and so we went through that and i put together over a period of a few years four cassettes and we called them the attic tracks and we sold them to the fans all around the world the money went uh, to help to pay for Georgia Clancy's schooling wherever they were in Sydney. That started a whole relationship. Trevor died before the cassettes were released, but I organised the music for the wake in the garden of the house. It was a very sad day. I went on to 2SERFM, the folk radio show, to talk about it. It was very hard. I was half in tears when I did it. You know, over the years, I've been asked first by Raven Records, by Pete Shalito and Glenn A. Baker. Mm. And Pete's down in Melbourne. Glenn's up here. To put something together, I put together a, a second history of Fairport, which leaves off after the first history album. That starts from 72 to 84. I put right. that together. So we've got the instrumental fiddlesticks that was just an Australian single release, an early version of Sir Patrick Spen's Banks of the Sweet Primroses. So a lot of the tracks from Fairport 9 through to um, the years they were with Polygram. So 72 to 84. I mean, I hate having to bring this sort of thing up, but it is part of the business. I mean, did you have to clear legalities and issues with the band? Raven Records did all that. Mm. I had to dig out the tracks or make some choices and submit them. They would oversee and say, yes, yes, yes. And they talked to Mushroom or whoever had the rights for Australia and put it together, all done correctly. That led to, I also got a, a two for one with Swarm, Smitty Burn. I gave a bit of help there, released uh, on Raven. And then the best of the Attic tracks with Trevor and Sandy, uh, 72 to 84, got released as a CD. What was the condition of the tapes when Trevor said, come up here? What were they like? Well, some of them had to be baked. Uh, I remember, uh, I think it was, uh, might have had a, a Bushwhackers submaster or something. And I took it down to our friend at the um, National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra. And he wrote back and said, well, John, the only thing I can do with this is to demonstrate to my students how not to keep a tape. <laughs> this is what happens when you do it wrong. But uh, at the same time, it was they were very helpful in doing a transcription from cassette onto digital 
for like WAV files for Trevor's Live at the Troubadour. You used to go to the Troubadour, Morris? Before my time. Still before your time, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not that young, but I'm... No. The Troubadour would have been like a big thing, I think, in the early 70s. I turned 18 in 1982, so right. um, I think the Troubadour might have well and truly have gone by then. Right. Well, um, this is 1981, and, and it was the last of the Attic Track cassettes, and my friends at Talking Elephant, who... Uh, music records in England asked me to release it to them for CD production and I spoke with Elizabeth we got the advance the sound archive did a digital transfer and then I went in assembled the listing and went into a studio in King's Cross and we had them EQ'd and in a nice format to send over to England it's still great to hear because Trevor introduces a lot of the songs you hear his voice it's live in the room mm. yeah. it's nice that he got a lot of that kudos because when you read a lot of the history they give him short shrift a lot of the time and sure. I, it's not fair because he's such a powerful voice in Fotheringay and Fairport and yes some uh, like Polly on the shore and things like that come all you wild young men and I wouldn't take my lead never lead your single life astray or into bad company the singing is beautiful, but, you know, but he just seems because he's next to San- Sandy, he be, he, he's like almost like a bit player yeah. in his own story. Yeah. And uh, it's nice to see that he's getting at least some kind of kudos now. Talented man, a great producer too. Oh yeah, I mean there were some projects that never got released there uh, that, that uh, I've got some nice tapes. But at the, I suppose you say at the end of the day, he was a funny guy. The big myth and legend that we have is about the New Zealand Sweetwater Festival where. Dave Pegg writes about getting drunk with Ozzy Osbourne on the plane going <laughs> over, and Ozzy ends up in Dave's economy seat, and Dave ends up in Ozzy's first class seat. <laughs> and Sandy turns up. I think she did a solo set, and then she also did a set with the band. And this was the first time they were getting together before they went back to England, did Rising for the Moon. Mm. And somewhere along the line, 10, 15 years later, Trevor's in New Zealand at some studios recording things for a film or whatever and a technician comes up to him and says hey you're trevor lucas aren't you he said yeah 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 he said oh i was working for the abc uh, the nzbc the national broadcaster when you played the sweetwater festival i got some wild footage of you and sandy and the band on stage i thought oh that's nice <laughs> <laughs> nothing else and then several years later he tells me and I say, well, whatever happened you know we've got some good friends over in New Zealand and I think Andy Bassett is on radio over there it's become that legendary missing tapes are there yeah. video uh, would they ever be playable if they were ever found Trevor Trevor yeah his focus was on the job he had in hand not in the the history side of things the first time I came across his name was with the Goanna band sure um, Spirit mm. of Play and yes. um, what a great sounding album that was. Oh, yeah. and, um, yes. I, I imagine that uh, it would have been quite something for him to be working with a great songwriter like Shane Howard. Yeah, no, he, he loved Shane. And to this day, I know George is in touch with Shane. You know, he's like Uncle Shane, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a way to, to uh, Georgia. You know, the, the, his work with the Bushwhackers, the, the dance album is a great album. He plays a bit of rhythm on that as well, and you can hear it. Mm. And, you know, I saw him play in London 
with Fairport maybe in 72, 73, with Jerry Donahue mm. on lead guitar, uh, even though he replaced my best friend at the time, Simon, in the band, there's no animosity. I first met him when he was in a collection mm. in London and the band were rehearsing in the Electra Records warehouse and it was Electra, your uh, rehearsal ends at 12 o'clock and Fairport come in. So we had this crossover and that's when I first met him and it wasn't until I don't know maybe 77 I was working at the Australian Hi-Fi show at the Southern Cross Hotel demonstrating big Klipsch loudspeakers at the time and in walks Trevor I hadn't seen him for so many years ask about one final project because it's an album that just means the world to me and that was gold dust the final sandy denny show which is just i think to this day one of my favorite ever live albums um tell us about how you assembled that look with that one liz and i were in london and we rang up island records um and it was the year before like 1997 so it could have been before or after Cropperty. Anyway, we rang up Island Records and we got a, a, a meeting organised with well, probably Joe Black or someone like him at, at Island. And we went over there and we said, look, we've done some research. There are these tapes in your vaults and these are the numbers of the tapes in your vaults of Sandy's last concert at the Royalty that we've had released. Some mixes got released on the Attic Tracks CD. Some of them got released on a, another bootleg CD, maybe No More Sad Refrains or someone mm-hmm. CD like that. And I said it would be great for these tapes to be got out of the vault, polished up, and to mark the anniversary of 20 years since she passed away. And they kind of liked that idea. They didn't get it out on the April day, but they got it out later on in the year. They gave it to Jerry to supervise the mastering. And, of course, when Jerry listened to it, he found duff notes and one or two bass notes that weren't right. Some of the BVs weren't right. So he got in there and did the overdubs of the guitar and bass parts and then got Chris Leslie and Simon Nickel to come in and sing extra BVs. So they were polished up. But it's essentially Sandy with the, her band at the time. And she had a cold, but she battled on. You'd never know. I mean, her, her voice. There's something about her voice which I've always felt. It's strong and fragile, if that makes any sort yes. of sense. And it, it's honest. And there it sounded to me as good as it ever did. Um, yes. So I, I absolutely adore that. And it's just sad to think that this was it. This is the last one. It's not the first live album that's been doctored. No. post <laughs> post performance you know i think any famous live album you can think of has been tarted up in some way to some degree yes yeah, yeah. yeah that was a big thing in the 70s i mean i guess it's probably continued through to this day but the 70s was the really the big era of the live album and yeah every live album that you can think of probably has been tarted up i've mentioned this a lot on the show uh, well thin lizzie's album live and dangerous the only thing that's live on that is the drums <laughs> everything <laughs> everything else was replaced <laughs> 
so they should really call it studio and only mildly <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it was very common. If you watch the extras on Gimme Shelter, you can see Jagger and Richards redoing the backing vocals for their Get Your Yaya's out yeah. album. Yes. Uh, you can see them in the studio right. just redoing them. Some bands could do it live and others couldn't. I think with the, with Jerry's thing on that, that album, wasn't there some kind of technical thing with it? There was like a hum going through it or something as well? Yes, that, a guitar out of tune and a bit of amplifier hum. Yeah. It's a, it's still, it sounds great though, that album. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. how it still has presence and... Her voice is the main thing that people are listening to it for. Some of it's maybe in the box sets. You haven't, we mentioned the 19 CD box set. The other projects that I've got involved with in conjunction with Elizabeth was Sandy live at the BBC on Strange Fruit. When it was drunk. It was Sue Armstrong at Strange Fruit approached us for the. They, they Strange Fruit were, had the access to the BBC tapes. They had a, a cosy relationship where they could get any of the bands of that period of time that were recording for the Beeb and uh, get a best of the Beeb released, like Fleetwood Mac did. Mm. I think we went and met Sue. What happened was the album got assembled, it got released. Island then lawyers said, no, you must withdraw that album. But it was after 2,000 or 3,000 had escaped the distribution warehouse and got sent out. And so they were a rarity. And if you yeah. are able to find them on Discog, yeah, yeah, Discogs, they sell for a fair amount of pounds nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got one and nobody's having it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I, have, I have one, but I can't find it tonight. So I don't know. What there's, a, there's a lovely interview on there as well. You don't hear much of Sandy talking so oh, right, it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a lovely kind of, I don't know who it was with one of those guys one of those yeah. BBC dudes yes, and, uh, yes. Uh, takes up it, it's about 10 minutes it's it's lovely yeah. Yeah. she always sounds like she's surprised that anybody's paying any attention to her at all yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah self-effacing you mentioned flypaper and so if you mention flypaper you you're to- we're talking about. You have a copy of Doom and Gloom from the Tomb. Oh uh, yeah, uh-huh. cool. Yeah, that's it. That's buried away, but it's available if you with the right price. <laughs> <laughs> we helped with the guys from Pledgling to uh, submit some tracks for this. I, I was still digging out tracks even for the Gold Dust, the, the big out, the 19 box set. I remember uh, they said, "Would you send over to London some tapes, any tapes of anything that you not so far." identified and released on the cassette and we found a small tape and um, played it and it's Sandy singing a song and no one knew what it was no one had heard the song we don't know whether it was a Sandy written song or was it Trad R song or it was someone else's song and uh, the feedback came from the BBC Two one of the popular DJs Mark someone wrong I'm not in England anymore <laughs> and he put out a message does anyone know this song on his afternoon show Mark Radcliffe I think it is name yeah yeah anyone know this song it's Sandy Denny and it uh, comes off the soon to be released box set and they're just trying to find out whether anyone can put a title on it or an ownership so that's what came out of the attic at Trevor's house uh, up in Epping fantastic 
you mentioned before about your trips to Cropperty. So for an ignorant Australian like me, where did Cropperty actually start? Did that get started with having an annual festival in mind or was it just a, a gathering amongst friends? What happened? Well, it, it was a reunion. We had the 40 years ago it was started in the 70s after Fairport supposedly broke up but they decided to get together again and do it and they started and it was a small affair but then it blew out nowadays I think for the last 36 or 7 years it's been more or less between 16 and 20,000 people turn up to this little village in Oxfordshire where the farmer lends them several fields. There's now an alternative festival run by others around because people camp in certain fields. They put up a bar and a tent and another PA system and get their own thing. The pubs run the Fringe Festival, the Fairport Fringe Festival at the Braze Nose. And the last couple of years, uh, I've been staying at the Braze Nose last couple of trips the pub that's on the back of Fairport 9 Mm. and we've been staying there uh, so that I can just walk up the road from the the gig site and go to bed at midnight so it's just something that's built up every every it is yeah it's something that's got a you know the English people and Shane's from Sheffield there's people they do canal boat trips they come down the canals tie up on the the local canal for the period of time. And, you know, I've met people, not just Northern England people, but plenty of people that this is their summer holiday. This is their commitment. They go down, whether it's they drive down or they boat down or they catch the train down to Banbury, but they invade Banbury in Oxfordshire. The warm-up gigs are great at the local Labour Club. So it's a full week. You get little Johnny England or Trad R play the Wednesday night there in in Banbury. So there's another concert that adds to the week that you can go to. And it's not purely folk. It's whatever they like. There's a lot of problems there Marilyn and played Rick Waitman or Rick Waitman's son was playing there he's got a duo and they were fantastic has, has Rick himself ever played there yes I think he has mm. yeah it's people that mainly Peggy interacts with in on the road or mates from Birmingham you know like Steve Winwood goes there Robert Plant goes there and and just the people leave them alone or they hang around the bar and do talk to people and drink. Yeah. I always have a chat with Ralph Mattel when I'm over there. Yeah, I did see some YouTube footage someone took on their mm. phone of Robert Plant forming with a band. I just thought, I just so lovely. It's just old mates. Yeah, old mates, and they just get up on stage. And, uh, you know, Peggy knows everyone. <laughs> you know, he's one of those guys that everybody seems to have crossed paths with at some point, hopefully in a good way, and end up playing. I don't think they've had Ozzy Osbourne, though. they they couldn't come up with a bowl of red only m&ms or something like that for him (laughs) yeah well peggy would have to um negotiate with sharon osborne and you can't imagine that happening (laughs) (laughs) sharon who's this bastard (laughs) i know rosie you're living in a world you didn't make Feeling happy when the things you want aren't even there to take. 
the property thing is well it's a phenomenon it's a very friendly yeah festival. it is it's, it's one it's, stage yeah. it's one of the longest bars you've ever seen yeah um i've become good friends with uh, leon who's the vegetarian chef to the stars of folk <laughs> And, you know, he caters for Steely and caters for Show of Hands and caters for Richard Thompson on tour. And uh, Simon Tosano, Richard's uh, road manager and engineer, sound engineer, always comes by and gets a Leon platter for Richard before the, he goes on stage or yeah. a couple of hours before he goes on stage. So I hang out with Leon now. And, uh, and then again, that's a Peggy connection because Leon told Peggy uh, that he was going to Australia he says oh you got to look up Johnny <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, Leon arrives and looks up Johnny and here I am you know we've, we've been mates for the last 20 years because of Peggy Peggy's son Matt plays bass with Proko Haram and has done for many years uh, the touring band and has subbed for Peggy but he also subbed for Peggy in Jethro Tull and at that time <laughs> Matthew Pegg was working for me <laughs> in my little hi-fi store I had at that time. Wow. So uh, I get in one morning, there's a 17-page fax about, this is, you go to the airport, you get on this plane, you, you know, we're sending you a, a cassette, these are the songs, you'll go to Los Angeles via Japan and learn, learn, learn these songs along the way. <laughs> And you did the 25th anniversary Jethro Tull tour of the uh, States. That's tricky stuff to learn as well. It's not, <laughs> not, not it's easy. Not, it's, not, it's not Chuck Berry. No, to match credit, it's very good. So, so yeah. you know, my Fairball connections are long and deep. It's great catching up with the guys, Simon and Peggy, Rick and Chris. So it seems that more than just any other band I can think of, Fairport's really like a, a community, a family. I mean, I don't want to sound yes. too cliched, but everything that you're saying, plus Richard coming back, to do shows with them and it seems like you don't ever leave <laughs> no Airport that's right yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the Hotel California treatment right. you know uh, I mean even Judy loved it when she was invited back in 97 she said it was like we're all 18 and 19 again back yeah. on stage playing those songs One Sure Thing and Don't Know Where I Stand and yeah. Jack of Diamonds Time Will Show the Wiser with Ian mm, singing mm. as well but that's uh, they were a great bunch of people proud to have had their friends for so many years and very proud to have been there right at the the genesis of the band we have a little group where at 2017 the friends english friends of fairport all meet at the top of the field property for the group photo and we did the same we joined them but we also had a separate photo session of the first friends of fairfort the ffofs mm-hmm. which included kingsley abbott uh, and his uh, wife it included richard lewis and his wife who we hadn't seen for i don't know 30 40 years and he named the group he he said well if you're convening at fairport to rehearse let's call you fairport convention and that name <laughs> stuck and so uh, like you say it's a community and we've all got these links and uh, i'm so happy that after all these years we're still in touch 55 years 50 to 60 years yeah magnificent thank you so much for your time tonight john it's been wonderful we're in a real history lesson it's just fascinating to hear these stories from someone who was there thank you so much for being part of the show oh it's been my pleasure too morris thank you nice to meet you and, and uh and a, huge, and, a huge, and a huge shout out to uh david kelly one of the listeners from uh love that album who uh, put me on to you thanks very much for that dave this interview wouldn't have happened if not for you much appreciated 
appreciated. So what we'll do now is uh, we'll go to a break and Shane and I will be back in a couple of moments to wrap things up and I'll tell you about what will be happening on next month's episode of Love That Album. She now owns a heart of stone For a heart of stone can never break And a heart of stone can never ache For a life that she has known She has held a heart of glass Which held her hopes in tangled schemes To maybe live them in her dreams And help the lonely sadness pass And we're back. Thank you so much to uh, John for being so very generous with his time and so fascinating with his stories. I imagine there's so many more stories that he could have told. It was, it was mm. just absolutely fascinating. It'd be a nine-hour podcast, I would imagine. I think there's a couple of history podcasts out there that do stretch that long. <laughs> do they Do they just seem that long when you listen to them? I'm trying to remember what it is, but I know that there's like a history podcast that stretches to six, seven hours on, on an episode wow. when they get rolling. And my good friend Mike White over at the projection booth, he uh, did, I think it was a six-hour episode on uh, the Mad Max series of films. Oh, um, but... I, I tell you what, I wouldn't have cut a minute out of it. It was no, no, it was terrific. No. He had interviews of a whole lot of the major players. That's it. You just sort of break it up into little bits and pieces. David Allen Coe's son's podcast go for they're about three hours. The, you know the country music ones. Yeah, have you uh, heard co- those? Cocaine and rhinestones. They're some yeah, of the, some of the best podcasts I've ever heard. Absolutely, they're, he, there's, they're, there's so much detail in them. And he, he's done all the research, and he's someone who, being within the eye of the hurricane, knew a lot yeah. of what he was talking about. I just love the fact that, you know, he's a guy who read all the history books and he was able to call out, no, they haven't done their research. This is bullshit. And I'll tell you why. Um, Yeah, that's right. He's a guy who really knew his stuff. I'm just dying for season two to come along. Yeah. The Bobby Gentry one was, I'm I'm a big Bobby Gentry fan and it was fantastic to get that much detail because nobody knows that much about her really. There was the one um, about the pill. Uh, yeah. I can't remember who who sang that. Uh, oh, Loretta Brent. Lynn. L- was, it, was it Loretta Lynn? I nearly said Vera Lynn. Um, <laughs> Definitely wasn't her. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, so yeah, L- Loretta Lynn doing the song about the pill. That was fascinating. Cocaine and Rhinestones. The first season yeah. is still up there. Shane and I, we both recommend it. So um, if you haven't heard that, please search that out. So before I go talking about what's going to be happening on episode 137 of Love That Album, so just want to find out what's happening in your world at the moment. What are you do? Are you recording anything at the moment? Obviously, you're not getting much of a chance to perform gigs, although, or maybe Gladys says that you can go out and perform gigs at the moment. What's happening? I did a little solo gig in Canberra last weekend uh, oh. to 24 people oh. in a place called The Keller in the German club. It was lovely. I, I almost didn't need a, a, a PA to sing through. It was like an old folk club gig. I just did it with an acoustic guitar. Mm. I didn't make bad money for it. They charged people to get in and it was okay. Yeah, I was able to just sing whatever I wanted to sing. They haven't been cancelled yet, but I've got a few, a few gigs coming up, one with the four 
Sunday riders, one with the uh, cigars and one with the trio. So hopefully they're still intact. We, we'll see what happens over the next week or so, I suppose. Unfortunately, I know that you're not coming to Melbourne. No, no. Well, we're, we're, sh- we're shut off from you. My partner is from Victoria and her children are down there and she can't get to see them. Uh, it's pretty awful. We just got to work through it. You know? I keep saying Skype is everyone's friend or should be everyone's friend. Yeah. Well, she does a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not quite the same. I'm going to talk now about what's happening next month. Love that album, episode 137. That'll be August's episode, August 2020, if you needed reminding. <laughs> Strangely enough, look, I have a lot of Pantheon artists. When I say Pantheon, I'm not talking about the wonderful podcast network that Love That Album is a part of. So uh, I'm sorry I hadn't mentioned that till now. Love That Album, part of the Pantheon network. And please go and listen to any of the other marvelous podcasts in the Pantheon network. Just go to pantheonpodcast.com. But when I mean Pantheon, I'm talking about artists that everyone should be listening to or everyone knows. And John Cale. I wouldn't actually say he was someone who I'd never listened to because I actually did have a live album of his from the 90s. But really, his studio stuff for the large part had eluded me. And my partner in the See Here podcast, my friend Bernie Stickwell, had said to me months ago, I said, look, I haven't been in love that album in a long while. Why don't we do a show together? And I said, absolutely. What would you like to do? And he suggested to me, let's talk about John Cale's album, Paris 1919. I said, okay, I'll give it a listen. And inside about a minute, I said, I don't need to listen to the rest of this. You're on. This is magnificent. Just it really left me with an impression. I mean, I don't want to give the game away before we go and actually talk about it. Next month, we'll talk about why I love it, and I want to find out why Bernie loves it. But it's an interesting pick for him, because like every time he's been on the show, and he hasn't been in a while, but we've talked about Judy Sill and Mark Eitzel, uh, and I can't remember, at least one other artist. And it's been all these singer-songwriter types, and Bernie's a big punk fan. But we've never talked punk, we've never talked anything remotely rocking or guitar, but he's gone and picked some of the most beautiful albums for us to discuss on the show so really looking forward to having him on and talking about uh, John Cale's Paris 1919 and since I've been listening to that over the last few months I found out that this album is a lot of people's favourite album so I hope that we have something interesting to say I know Bernie will I hope I'll find something interesting to say anyway August 2020 episode 137 we'll be talking about John Cale Paris 1919 All I can say, therefore, at the end of this is just please look after yourselves, people. Don't lose your patience with people on the internet who are saying things that you disagree with, even if they are stupid. Right now, just try to be as nice as possible. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop rambling. Thanks very much, Shane. Uh, Look forward to having you back on again. Pleasure. And uh, until next month, all the best. Cheers. Oh